open wide and tuck in to Spoon It with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Coming up on today's episode, you've been sending in your questions for Legma Stratton, the Parliament's COP26 spokeswoman. We put them to her. We'll find out exactly what she expects to happen at the climate change talks and has she changed her diesel car? That's coming up in just a moment. First, it's Tuesday, so it must be Finkelvich, but we are Finkless today. So John Stevens plays the part of Daniel Finkelstein and he joins David Iwanovich. I think, I think Danny was in the House of Lords and tripped over his robe. Um, <laughs> And that's why he's not with us today, or it could be because it's half term. <laughs> I bet that's an excuse that he's used uh, in the past. Because um, as we know, he wears his robes all the time. Uh, so uh, let's talk about uh, COP, first of all, David. Are you excited? Um, I, I kind of know a bit too much about it to be excited because, um, you know, I, I belong to that kind of category of journalists who's made serious programmes on radio about why it is that most of the work at COP is done before you even get there. And therefore, it's a question of announcing what people have largely already decided uh, and so on. Um, uh, but in terms of the kind of the publicity surrounding it um, and on the basis that you really can't do enough at the moment on this um uh yeah i guess i'm kind of moderately excited by it but i'm very much more than being excited by the occasion i'm extremely exercised by the subject um and and what about you john i'm really excited um uh i think i mean david was saying that all the work goes in beforehand i think that is going to be part of the problem for the government that i'm just not convinced that the full might of the government has been behind this i mean there was an article in the sunday times magazine a couple of months ago talking about when the french had it obviously cop in paris was really successful how for two years the full might of the french foreign ministry was behind this their foreign minister was touring around the country and obviously we've had alok sharma the cop president doing that but 
Has Liz Truss's Foreign Secretary really done much to care about COP? I don't think so. Has Dominic Raab, her predecessor, done anything about COP? Not really. Did Liz Truss mention it in a conference speech last month? No. Did Boris Johnson mention it? No. So I just think there's been a kind of lack of enthusiasm at the top of the government until the last couple of weeks. And now we've started seeing Boris Johnson making all these calls to world leaders. Well, Liz Truss has been too busy having her photos taken. Uh, according to the sterling efforts of uh, Val Lowe at the Times, that she's um, uh, on the government. She's had 267 photos of herself posted on the government's Flickr account, compared to 104 for the for the entire cabinet put together. So uh, that's why she hasn't got time to think about cops. She's too busy posing for photos. Well, how does that? You two know this better than me because you, you, you do this stuff more often than I do. How does that happen? I mean, I'm, I don't presume that she says to somebody in the, foreign, uh, in the foreign office, look, I think there's not enough photographs of me out there. Can you take a thousand more? Do you think, or does she have an advisor who says, Mandy's, I think it's about time we kind of boosted your profile just a little bit and I've organised these things. I mean, is that how it happens? Well, I think it's rife through Whitehall. I mean, obviously, there's more photos of her than anyone else. But Rishi Sunak's been doing it for months. You go on the there's a Treasury Flickr account of just pictures of him. It seems that everyone's kind of been doing more and more of this. When Oliver Dowden was DCMS secretary, he had people take pictures of him walking between his department and the Commons. It's not Liz Trust. It seems to have been spreading between everyone, and we're paying for it. And so, but and anyway, I also wanted to, you know, to question one thing you said about Boris Johnson. What more, how much more seriously uh, can you take something than giving an interview about it to a group of school children? <laughs> yeah, we, we, it was quite exciting. We got the news that he was doing a press conference uh, on uh, climate change. And yeah, it turned out it was, um, it was only to school children asking the questions. Uh, at which the biggest takeaway is to get into a row with your with your own <laughs> czar on the subject about the benefits of recycling, where actually what he's trying to say is something slightly different to the thing he ended up actually saying. Uh, it was most it was most bizarre. So to that to that extent, I mean, it, it is funny, isn't it? The uh, going back to the original point, this kind of two way um, the government seems to be facing on this desperately keen to talk up uh, COP twenty six on the one hand, and yet actually missing all kinds of opportunities to convince us about uh, to convince people about it. Uh, uh, I am pretty sure that they do take it extraordinarily seriously. I think part of that is that ministers are slightly allergic to talking about green stuff when they think there might be a problem. So there's a nervousness around net zero. Obviously, Rishi Sunak's warned about the costs of that. And I think Liz Truss just thinks politically, do I want to be hitched to this bandwagon? No, I don't. I want to keep myself as far away from it as I can in case I want to run to be leader in the future. Uh, really? So, well, that's very. In, in other words, are you saying? Because again, I think you know both you two know more about this than I do. That it is still not good politics in terms of winning the Tory party to support you to be big on things like I don't know saving the planet. Well, and also think Liz Truss is obviously coming in late in the game. I think she thinks, oh, this might not go particularly well. Why at this late stage in the game would I want to kind of invest capital in it? Let's let. Alex Sharma take the blame if it goes wrong. <laughs> and actually, it's not very actually, flattering, is, is it? She's also one of those people in the government who who does like to fly the liberty flag uh, where possible. So she'd be very much more on the side of just let everyone just decide whether or not they want to do any of that <laughs> cutting their emissions. 
um, you know, we're not in the business of telling people what to do, despite, you know, that being exactly what the government spent the last uh, year doing. But that, that's that, that's definitely her. If you're going to place her anywhere on the on the spectrum, that's it, isn't it, John? Oh, definitely. Yeah. But that means you send poor old Anne-Marie Trevelyan, who, do, who up until 2012 thought that climate change was a hoax uh, around, telling us all what to do with our boilers as if she was a kind of, you know, in a very kind of teacherly way. Yes, the track record of her. I mean, you know, you could do the same thing with the problem. In fact, we've talked about a bit about that on the on the show before. So let's move on and talk about uh, the budget. Given that we've know almost all of what uh, Richard Sunak's going to announce due to his uh, um, press release diarrhea that uh, we've been subjected to over, I think we're we up to about twenty press releases now, John. I don't, I'm saying there's been loads and loads and loads, but I actually completely disagree with you there because I think the big thing of the budget will be not where we are spending the money, but where we are not spending the money. And so mm. far, all of those press releases have been different chunks of money on different bits that we promised as part of the spending review. But we've not been able to compare them to old pots of money. So it's just been kind of, we're going to spend a random two billions on brownfield housing here. We're going to spend a random six or seven billion pounds on transport here. But I think, you know, where budgets unravel is in the aftermath. And I think that would be, it could, we might not even see it on the day, but I think it's in the days afterwards. It's working out where in the spending we have people lost pots of money. Yeah, this is a That's very, it. very that good, is interesting. This is a very good, a good point. point. Yeah, it, well, it is a very good point because you get all these kind of things. And of course, we sort of lap them up. And I mean, without, again, without, without wanting to upset the two of you, part of the problem here is that every time we get an announcement like this, it's not analysed journalistically on the whole by the um, business editors and the economics editors, etc. In the first instance, it's covered by the political staff who don't necessarily get inside the details of the uh, of the consequence or uh, and the policy consequences of these things. And the government is therefore able to do this trick, and it's very good, John, that you're call you're calling it out, of telling you all the things it is going to spend extra money on, although extra to what is a big question, and absolutely tells you nothing about what's going to be standing still and therefore effectively losing out as a consequence of the budget, which will be some very big areas indeed. Yeah, but John, I'm not, defend I mean, yourself. I Get your abacus out and defend yourself <laughs> from the charge that the lobby lobby journalists are not good with the numbers. An outrageous suggestion. Well, I didn't come on this radio show to be insulted like that. But um, <laughs> um, actually, you did. I yeah, you did. I mean, that's literally that's that's what that's what playing the role of daddy involves. Yeah, oh. they just didn't tell you. <laughs> but I think you know. I mean, we might say that now, but I think. <sighs> If there are tricks in there, it will come out in the days after. You know, it's it's not like we shut up shop after budget. We do one day of reporting and then that's it. I just don't think that's right that just because they may be able to play smoke and mirrors tricks now, that they'll be able to get away with it for the longer term. And what, what do you think we know about what the government stands for, uh, David? Because we do have this sort of slightly weird situation where Rishi Sunak says, no, I'm a low tax, you know, small state conservative. While well, putting just, up national insurance and, and massively expanding the role of the well, state. Well, just imagine trying to be Keir Starmer at the moment under, you know, the, the, let's just take the announcements for yesterday. Um, the living wage is going to be up and they're getting rid of the pay freeze, although, of course, that doesn't tell you what the pay settlements in the public sector will be. What on earth is a Labour leader supposed to say to that? Mo, do it. 
whatever it is, do it more. Do twice as much of whatever it is that you're doing. Um, know you're being reckless, etc. Know you've got to put up taxes properly in order to be able to balance the books, and that means that everybody should be taxed a bit more, uh, and so on. Um, uh, this is what happens essentially when you have a government that doesn't seem to have a kind of ideological position that we're used to, you know, low taxation, low expenditure. That's completely gone, meaning that there, it, we, we, it, has, it has actually narrowed any potential ground between it and the opposition uh, de facto. And that means uh, for uh, uh, and, that, and, that, and that is terribly confusing. Now, we've all kind of half anticipated a movement off to the conservative right where kind of, you know, uh, uh, low uh, expenditure people um, are going to say, no, this isn't Thatcherism as we understand it. But you know what? It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen because fundamentally it, well, the default position of the Conservative Party is you do what you have to do to stay in power. And in that sense, Thatcherism was in a sense a kind of bit of an aberration uh, uh, really. That's what the Conservative Party is for, is to put itself in government and it will do whatever it has to do and say whatever it has to say in order to do that. But I think that's why the opposition, rather than just saying, oh, we want you to spend a bit more, are moving their criticism to delivery. So Rachel Reeves in my paper today is talking about how, yes, taxes are at the highest level since the Second World War, but are people really getting the best services they've had since the Second World War? She's highlighting things about people being able to get a GP appointment, saying the government are very good at promising these things, but when it actually comes to delivering them, they're struggling. I think that's where you'll see Labour pivoting to rather than just saying, oh, more, more, more money here, saying, OK, spend the money, but make sure you're doing it properly. Well, that makes her a kind of adjunct to the Taxpayers' Alliance, doesn't it, really? I mean, in, in, in terms of the appeal of it. I mean, I, I don't disagree with what you're saying at all, but it is a kind of incredibly, unless you're carefully, very narrow and technocratic basis from which uh, Labour to attack the, the, the Conservative Party, akin to attacking it mainly for competence rather than for policies. And that's always a bit kind of, what's the word, underwhelming? Mm-hmm. Also, it's quite risky because if if you're criticising the competence, but you, you, there's a risk you end up just highlighting in people's minds what the government's promising, and then if they end up delivering it, well, what's the point of the Labour Party? I mean, it's just just sitting around going, oh, oh well, the devil's in the detail, and we all know they're completely useless. If they turn out in the public side not to be completely useless, what have you got left then? I also think that they've struggled with some of the arguments they've made in the past, you know, all this levelling up money being poured into Tory constituencies. I think they, I think it was a piece around last week saying they've kind of started ditching that argument because yeah. they realised that people just thought, oh, you get vote Tory and you end up loads of money being spent in your area. Well, that's actually an argument for the Tories rather than for Labour. <laughs> that's really interesting. So they've sort of quietly dropped that as a yeah. as a policy. That's that's. Yeah. Um, I hadn't clocked that. Uh, now, David, uh, one last thing, because one of my favourite subjects, uh, there's a story that you'd picked out about um, uh, parents misbehaving on the touchline at pushy parents at f young uh, youth football matches. Yeah, we've, we, we, there's a kind of slew of stories going on about this, and, and therefore a kind of slew of anecdotes, etc. And people I've spoken to who now I, I I had all daughters, and while girls do play football, so none of mine did, so I never got to stand on a touchline. But I know a number of people who go along to um, kids' football matches and so on, and they all say the same thing, which is that there is a brand of parent which is always a father 
that is so aggressive and so unpleasant and so ridiculously competitive by proxy. You know, Munchausen's by proxy, which is where you kind of, you, you make your kids ill on your behalf, falsely, etc. And there's a kind of, there's a kind of megalomania by proxy in which you kind of invest it all in, in the child and they behave really badly. Um, now, I don't know, Matt, whether you've uh, noticed any of this, but it's one of these kind of great social problems. Then somebody turns up and says, well, the FA should do more about it because they effectively run the entire entire sport, um, which means there'll be more of an indemnity for referees who take the teams, both teams off the pitches if it happens, which is in the end the only way of, of dealing with it. But... As with, you know, looking at, uh, you know, that the people who do anti-vax demonstrations, you do wonder at the behaviour of some people in British society and so on, and where, <laughs> and essentially, and where they got it from. Uh, well, as uh, my uh, stepdaughter uh, used to play football uh, every Sunday morning, we'd have to go and stand in miserable weather, and some of the behaviour was terrible. Like, Dad's getting incredibly cross about, you know, nine-year-olds, uh, and I used to just stick to you know, straightforward, go on or well done, um, <laughs> while other people are like, down, yeah, down the line, down the line. Like, <laughs> just getting really, like like people do at Wembley, where they think, well, if, you know, <laughs> that player's going to listen to me uh, shouting these, and always shouting totally contradictory instructions. Um, and, you know, in particular, the, the, the most aggressive dads were usually the ones who were then roped into uh, being a linesman, because that sort of kept them out of the way and they had to be quiet. Yeah. I- Actually, I do have the answer to this. You've just made me realise what it is. The answer to it is to film it all and then put it on social media so they can see themselves. Yeah, Because I think the thing is, I think the thing is, they probably just don't know what they look like. (laughs) John, your um, your sporting days, do you remember pushing Mm. parents on the the touchline? Well, you say that filming it is the thing that sorts it. I mean, my my sporting experience is basically uh, PE day in primary school and secondary school. <laughs> and in primary school, one of my classmates who was, they, they've got a birthday near me, so we're always in the same group. So my mum would come in, you'd go around, throw little bean bags or do running and whatever. And this other child who was always in my little group, his grandmother would come with a camcorder and record the whole thing. <laughs> but we're, we're, we're giving commentary the whole time. So you'd just uh, be like running along. Yes. And coming up the inside. Yeah, the... So I'm just not sure filming it is the answer. I think that makes parents worse. <laughs> the, uh, the, the out of the side of your mouth commentary into a camcorder is a thing that I, I, I think in a way the smartphone has killed that off because um, I remember sort of similarly people sort of lugging those great big camcorders around sort of on holidays you think who's oh. going to sit and watch it here we are look we're just going up the stairs uh, <laughs> no, some, some poor souls had to sit and watch that uh, and nobody wants that nobody wants that that's John Stevens from the Daily Mail and David Iwanovich from the Times. Of course, you read David in the Times every week. Just get yourself a digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, Allegra Stratton answers your questions. Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualised podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of light-hearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top-tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box podcast now with a less than a week to go until those COP26 climate change talks begin in Glasgow. With the Prime Minister warning it's touch and go that he secures a global agreement to limit global temperature rises. How much of it do you understand? Well, we've been asking listeners to send in their questions all week about climate change. And I'm delighted to be joined from Downing Street this morning by Allegra Stratton, the Prime Minister's COP26 spokeswoman. Morning, Allegra. Morning, Matt. Morning, Not everyone. long to go. Not long to go. Are you excited? Uh, uh, I'm keen keen for it to get started. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, in that case, uh, let's get started on the uh, questions. We've got several which are all about cops. I might read them all to you because I suspect the answers will slightly overlap. David says, with Putin and Xi confirmed not to be attending and possibly more no-shows to come, is COP26 already a failure of diplomacy? What agreements can possibly be reached without the participation of heads of state of the world's biggest polluters? Uh, Dylan said, I wanted to ask about the commitments countries make. Are these commitments binding in any way? Is there anything to stop a country promising big plans at the conference but not actually following through? And then Danny said that given that two of the biggest CO2 emitters are not committing to net zero, and without them, according to science, we won't be able to stop the two degrees rise, what's the point in bankrupting both the country and its citizens with onerous CO2 targets? So they're sort of they're all in a similar place. There. So let's first of all start with Russia and China not attending. What does that mean for the chance of success at COP? Um, it 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 they will be sending country delegations. Those country delegations will have two two jobs. One is finishing the Paris Agreement. So there's bits of Paris that have not been that are not yet signed and sealed. So those delegates and negotiators... Explain, explain what those are, because when we talk about bits of Paris, there's a previous summit in Paris yeah. where some stuff was agreed but not totally signed off. So firstly, it's on the role of carbon markets. Um, so on the, on the role of whether or not a country that has gone above and beyond in reducing its, its carbon emissions, whether it could then trade those with, with other parts of the world. And a myriad of other ways in which you can have a carbon market. So firstly, it's, a, it's fundamentally about um, who marks all of our homework, um, uh, over what, what period, five or 10 years, and then this question about, about markets and the use of them. We, we, we already have something of a voluntary market, but we don't have it formalized within Paris. So there's those very complicated, you know, there's a reason why they are, they are not yet, it's not yet finalized. It wasn't the thing that they could get done. And if you look, if you look at the, um, if you look at the way that negotiators break down the agreement into blocks and blocks that have not been resolved, um, it's quite a mosaic, this bit of the Paris <laughs> Agreement of unresolved, right? And so that's what Alok Sharma will be pushing on 
and what our uh, lead negotiator, Archie Young, will be will be in a dark room dealing with for the two weeks. So, so the first thing is that you will have countries negotiating that and finishing that off, um, we hope. Um, but then you have a separate uh, arc or uh, rhythm to the two weeks of COP. And that's why we talk about um, 2030 targets called nationally determined contributions. And that's why we talk about coal cars, cash and trees, because you can turn up as a country, but you can also turn up as a large manufacturer or a big company. And you can make a statement um, with real commitments behind it around each of those real world um, uh, areas. So for me, COP is about, whereas Paris was about, you know, everyone agreeing on a piece of paper, apart from the three things I've just talked you through, everyone agreeing that we wanted to sort this out. For me, Glasgow is about it getting real, us actually taking real world action. In Paris, they, there wasn't much talk, which you will hear lots of at Glasgow. There wasn't talk about, okay, so what year, what year for phase out of coal? when for the phase out of or the end of um, uh, petrol and diesel cars. So it's real world action in Glasgow and delegates and negotiators sent from countries will be will be uh, expected to come with with ambitious commitments in those areas. Um, so, of course, we are driving for the highest ambition to come out of Glasgow. All of us listening, you too, Matt, we, we, we need we need Glasgow to get the highest ambition out of countries. It's not either or, it is every single commitment we can get from countries on coal cars, cash and trees, um, will bring down real world emission changes, reductions very quickly and give us a chance of hitting that 2030 target of halving our emissions. So on the on the fact that uh, President Xi, President Putin aren't coming, China and Russia two big uh, emitters, Will they will they attend virtually? You said they'll they'll still be sending negotiating teams. It's uh, there's two days the World Leaders Summit where it is world leaders and that's that's hard and fast. Um, then then there will then they, they the the leaders leave Glasgow and the negotiators negotiate and alongside that you'll have these theme days. So for pe- people who who are that interested. Uh, Wednesday is Finance Day, so you'll have the Chancellor there. You'll hear from others in this area, uh, essentially to the to the coal, to the cash part of coal cars, cash and trees. Um, Thursday is Energy Day, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So you'll see government ministers um, pop up on those individual days, uh, and 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 as I say, in tandem with all of that, you'll have the negotiators trying to finish par- the Paris Agreement. But while they are doing that in in these negotiating rooms we will also be driving ambition in these different themed areas so that if we can make real progress on coal and cars and, and trees, um, we will be able to bring down the temperature increase that the world is scheduled is on track for. We're on track. One, we're at 1.1 already. Um, Paris, everything agreed at Paris put us on track for a, up to 3.4, somewhere between four and three. Um, the pledges that we already have are are in the high twos. Um, 2.7 is the one I heard most recently, but it does switch around depending on how you cut it. Um, and we need to be bringing that down to 1.5. But the thing is, Glasgow on its own won't do that. Um, just to explain how, how seeing as it, it seems like from the tenor of the questions, people just want more detail to understand this, this yeah. complex thing. 
pa- Paris cre- created these things called ratchets, essentially turns of the circle, turns of the wheel. Um, and the, each each ratchet was going to get us closer to making 1.5, keeping 1.5 alive, reducing temperature increase to 1.5. We are the first turn of the circle. So we are the first time round that the world says, right, the plan that we agreed in Paris, in Glasgow, we now have to show how we have reduced emissions. So we're the, the first moment of truth. That's That's why we call it the moment of truth, because it's when we realise whether the process the world gave itself in Paris in 2015, whether it works. So a lot is riding on Glasgow, getting big ambition from countries because it's the first moment we look up after Paris and we say, does this process we gave ourselves for sorting, gripping climate change, does it work? And on the on the question of the fact that China and Russia aren't sending their world leaders, does that mean, as a result, COP, will be less ambitious, less successful? China's position is dependent on the view China takes, listening to the arguments made in the room and the arguments indeed at G20 as well. Um, You know, the G20 is in many ways the beginning of COP. Um, At the G20 climate and environment minister meeting in, I think it was July, they all agreed to come back at the G20 with with these more ambitious nationally determined contributions. That's a commitment everybody gave. So the prime minister in Rome will be waiting to see the answer on a number of fronts because... Which is good, just to be explained, the G20 is this weekend. It's sort of at the start of the kickoff of COP. It's the kickoff of COP. And on those on those commitments, just on the point that Dinamo, because we'll move on and do some more questions. So, when you talk about these commitments, are they binding in any way? Are you essentially taking countries on trust? Is 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 that basically you know you hope that if somebody says something publicly in COP in Glasgow, they don't go home and not do it, or are they binding in some way? They're binding by the UNFCCC, which is the the body that 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 administers this part part of um, what is outstanding about Paris is, is as I say about how we mark the homework uh, of, 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 of all of us. But, um, you know, the, the, the point that I come back to is that on so many of these real world changes, countries want to be doing, should want to be doing this. They should want to be having their manufacturers, their car manufacturers shifting to, to EVs. They should want to be developing big renewable projects, wind and solar. We talk about coal, big coal plants being built in in G20, in, 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 in any country around the world now as, as a stranded asset, because very quickly, already, they are uneconomic and they will become even more so as these other bits, uh, not only the proven technology we have with wind and solar, but the new technology that's coming along rapidly. And you saw um, the UK government invest in massively last week, uh, will make these coal plants stranded assets. So it becomes... It isn't as much, though I completely get the question from, from your listener, it isn't as much about who is going to mark their homework. It is about these are economic decisions for countries. And if you go too heavy down a road that is running out, you will end up with stranded assets and you will end up with people employed in industries which which may not be economic very, very soon. OK, let's try and um, rattle through some more questions. Uh, we're going to play you a question now. Uh, okay. still, on the, still slightly on the, on, on the subject of COP. Uh, but on the question of how to get there. Uh, So uh, this is a question from Andrew. Hi, Allegra. Isn't it madness that if you try to get a train to COP in Glasgow from the south of England, it's about four times more expensive than a flight? 
What could the government do to make more sustainable transport choices cheaper and more attractive and discourage domestic flights? Um, you have already seen on some some uh, train operators are bringing down the cost rapidly of of long distance travel to to Glasgow uh, and to Scotland. So you're already seeing encouraging movement in in that way. But it's individual choice. Um, if you are going to COP26, just take a second to think about the way that you 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 want to get there. Long term, um, you saw it from us last week in the net zero uh, review strategy that we published, even more of a push on sustainable aviation fuel, what we like to call jet zero. Uh, we have put, I think it's 180 million, it might be 120 million. There's lots of these price tags floating around at the moment. We'll put significant cash into making sure we are at the forefront of developing lower lower carbon emission aviation fuel. I, it is obviously a longer term solution, but in, in the short term, it's us as individuals. We just have to think, uh, what is the right thing to do? Um, just on, uh, very quickly on, this, on a similar theme, Sarah uh, emailed and said, may I ask whether the leaders at COP will be served vegetarian or sustainable food only and their towels will not be changed every day? <laughs> I don't I, know I, about... I imagine this is slightly outside your remit. <laughs> uh, no, there, uh, there is a push. Um, I don't know, Sarah, whether you're coming to COP, but it's going to be locally sourced food. And I am quite interested in how they are running it. It sounds it sounds clever. They are trying to make sure that all of the menus across the vast sprawling complex are made from similar foodstuffs so that you have that economy of scale, but you also have that um, no limiting as much waste as possible. So I think I think it will actually be quite interesting. Matt, are you coming? No, I'm not. No. You're not? Okay, all right. Well, I'll send you a postcard. <laughs> <laughs> Tell but, me what's um, happening with the towels. That's the a very, that's a... <laughs> I don't know what's happening with the towels. I'm going to go and find out. But don't, okay, most, but don't most hotels now say, right? Um, exactly. I don't, don't keep... Want, um, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Hang them up again. Yet. Hang them up yeah. again. Right, let's keep moving on. Uh, we've had lots of questions about homes and house building and, and that sort of thing, including uh, this one from Zoe. Why don't you make house builders install heat pumps, electric car charge points, solar panels and storage batteries now? Thousands of new homes are being thrown up with none of the above. Why? They will be, um, Zoe, they will be soon, is the answer. So we, um, we have something announced called the Future Home Standard. Um, it's from 2025. Uh, if you were here in the flesh rather than having recorded it, you'd say, why not now? These, these government programmes take a while to, to roll out. But you're right, from 2025, there will be this expectation on uh, new homes being built. In the meantime, there is, because um, your, your question has sort of four constituent parts, doesn't it? Um, just taking the infrastructure for EVs, again, there was new money in the Net Zero review uh, just last week to encourage and improve the rollout of that infrastructure on everybody's street. Uh, because we the, actually we had quite a few questions on that. People saying, I'd quite like to get an electric car, but I've only got on-street parking. And uh, so many people sent in, I'll be honest, quite long-winded questions about journeys they tried to make without, you know, try, you know, they've stopped off somewhere and the points weren't working and all that. That infrastructure is really important, isn't it? It is, and there's an, an EV infrastructure strategy coming pretty soon. Um, but in the meantime, for those of you that can't wait, there was, um, I think it's 620 million that was in our Net Zero review last week to, to do exactly this to try and, you know, because it, 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 it can't be right that if you have a, a garage or whatever, it, you, you, it is easier for you 
but that's why there's significant cash behind this, more than half half billion, um, looking at what the rollout um, needs to look like on streets up and down the country. Uh, so that's one part of your your perfect Actually, world. Ju- that you ju- just <laughs> on that, let me just ask you about that. So Hannah, Hannah was one of the people who emailed in. We want to trade in our petrol car for a small electric car. Uh, unfortunately, like a great many people, we only have on-street parking. It's a major stumbling block. How can we expect an easily accessible and widespread network of charging points to be in place? Is there any truth in the rumour of using street lampposts as a framework for charging points? And what about charging in public car parks? And will the charging uh, fee uh, be compatible uh, with the low fees that people with access to home charging points could enjoy? Is that right? You might be able to plug your car into a lamppost? I have heard that discussed. Um, um, Yeah, it's been an idea. uh, She's obviously well informed. It's an idea that's been doing the rounds for a while. But you will... Felt like last time I was here, I was saying, don't worry, a few weeks till the net zero strategy comes out. Now the net zero strategy's come out, we need to talk about the next strategy. You'll have there will be a push on EV infrastructure. We know that there's appetite. We're seeing it in the numbers now. We have we have great many more EVs being sold. Um, and that means more of you have got them at home. Uh, but for those of you that feel it's not that easy to charge, there was money last week in the strategy. So we are looking at ways we can improve on street um, charging, uh, but just give, give us a bit of time. But the brilliant news is there's the demand. It's there. People want to make this shift. Um, and we have, what is it, um, eight, eight years and one and a half months, eight years and two months before the, the, that, that, that date for the end of um, petrol and diesel new sales. And in that time, we will we will be making sure that it's as comfortable as possible for people to use an EV. Um, Debbie emailed in and said, we live in an end of Terry's 1902-ish house, actually in Boris Johnson's constituency. It's a bit detailed, this, but I think lots of people have okay. uh, sympathy yeah. with it. We've, we've got a three-legged cat called Mr. Twink, and we've been very worried about putting her into a cattery to install any insulation. We found painting and re-roofing this year very scary. We thought we'd lost her one day during the works, which we found near our next-door neighbours. Also, we don't know exactly what installation would be best for us to install. And I suppose it's a very... Not everyone has got a three-legged cat. However, no, I yeah. the prospect of overhaul... People want to do this. The overwhelming sense we got with lots of questions. People want to do this. But the real-world issues of... We've only got on-street parking. It'd be very difficult for us to move out and have our house redone. We don't know if we've got space for a heat pump, all of that sort of stuff. The real world impacts are are complicated, aren't they? But they are. Um, and b- by the way, I have four cats, so I sympathise. <laughs> <laughs> none of them, none of them only have three legs. Um, but 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 they 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 worry me too, and they would worry me in the same way that they're worrying you. Um, but look, is it, it was Debbie? I think we. I don't know, Debbie, if you have have the time, but the the net zero. Uh, strategy that we published last week and then the heat and building strategy alongside it it is being um, hailed by many independent experts as the most detailed and rigorous plan by by a government um, to try and give people like you the guide rails as we get to a lower carbon society Um, so we have that hope that we will shift over from EV, from petrol and diesel to EVs in 2030. But we now also have the have the aspiration to move over to total low carbon heating, heat pumps or otherwise from 2035. Um, but it's also all of the other bits of, of your life um, that will also need to be looked at as we get to that lower carbon world. It's all in black and white in the net zero strategy, the heat and building strategy, but also strategies in months previous, the hydrogen strategy, 
transportation strategy, decarbonizing transportation and so on. So you, if you look at somebody like Chris Stark, uh, who runs the Committee on Climate Change, uh, and indeed that, that, that committee was frequently thrown back at people like me in the previous few, you know, six months as they're saying you're not going far enough. Um, you know, for them, um, we have given people a huge amount of information now. So no part of your life has been not looked at, but equally, it's not overnight. Net zero is not overnight. Nobody is coming for anybody's boiler tomorrow. Nobody is coming for anybody's anybody's car um, immediately. By setting it out, uh, as the government did last week, we hope we can help all of you plan and, and get there methodically. And where necessary, there's support. So so for people who want to, to go quickly and move from, from, a, from a gas boiler to a, to a heat pump, there is cash for you to do that. Um, five thousand pounds but also you look at a company like octopus they're saying they will they will they will fit it for they hope um not far off the cost of of a what a gas boiler would have would have meant for you and by doing that all of all of you will be driving um the market the industry companies to want to create more heat pumps to want to work out the technologies of the future so that's the that's the judgment that the government's come to um, so I hope, I hope, Debbie, I'm very happy to go away and look in more detail at your problems and your three-legged cat and how to look after her or he or, he or she uh, while your insulation is being fitted. Um, I'm, I'm happy to come back on in more detail. <laughs> and just on uh, insulation in particular, obviously Insulate Britain, after a couple of weeks off, are back and lying down in front of buses. And we spoke to someone on, uh, from the group on the show yesterday and um they said we're not here to be popular and i i sort of tried to make the problem i'm not sure actually i'm not sure you're really helping the cause what's your take on my sense is that lots of main you know sensible people actually do want to do this stuff and uh people these sort of insulate britain like gluing yourself to bridges lying down in front of buses actually harms the cause i don't i wonder what you think about that you know, and the, the, and the cause is that the government has gone further and faster than a great number of governments um, in setting out how we are going to get to net zero Britain. And I, it was quite striking to me when I was reading the drafts of, of, of the net zero strategy um, and, and, and that sentence in it that says that from 2050, the UK, because of the plans in this document, will no longer contribute to global to changes in in climate because we will we will that will be it there will be it will be at net zero and i think that sort of sort of light bulb moment for me that just the simple fact of what all of these changes even though we've been striving for net zero for a few years now just to sort of see it that boldly that that's what it will mean that that we will be living in a low carbon society by the way into the mix we will have created jobs by going early we will have created industries that we can export around the world we will have co-benefits so we will be living in um on streets that that that, that, that where there's less pollution um and that will have effects on air pollution and 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 and, and so on so and, and the cycling and the walking that we we are, it's clear people are already doing, as you say, Matt, already doing more of because they're already, they're, they already want to be taking these steps. Um, that will be better for people's health longer term as well. So, so um, you're right. Yes, people, 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 the, the polling now shows it's routinely in the top three of concerns for everybody um, across many different demographics. And that, as you know, Matt, having covered politics for quite a while, like me, um, that has not always been true. Um, and so we, ha we are at a turning point. And this moment in Glasgow 
is a huge moment for for world because we we the science is clear we need to take we need to halve emissions by 2030 that wasn't actually the case when they were agreeing paris um it's become clearer in the time since paris which means that this huge cop this cop 26 in glasgow um is is it stands to reason at the beginning of this important decade what they call the decisive decade it will be a decisive moment because if we can drive the highest ambition from every single country coming we can embed this lower carbon technology early enough on to give ourselves a fighting chance. So against the backdrop of all of that, how helpful is insulate Britain annoying people trying to get to work? Um, I think you're right, Matt, that, that most people have formed their own view and their own view as shown in the focus groups and opinion polls, but also in the conversations me and you have with our family is that they want to make the change themselves um, and, that they, and that they are doing and um uh you know be it be it yeah you know and, and that's and the net zero strategy is there to give people the guide rails and the policy support and bring about the new lower carbon tech to make it possible for people when they come to replace their car or when they come to replace their boiler to make a lower carbon choice okay let's um try and squeeze in a couple more questions uh we had uh this one sent in from uh yossi Hi there, here's a question for Allegra uh, in advance of COP26. I'd like to know if all the government cars and the cars used by the Crown are now going to be changed to electric only, given the government's new desire to make everything electric at, at pace. Um, Allegra, uh, I, sh I should probably throw in here, we also had a question from Mark who emailed <laughs> in saying, has Allegra bought an electric car yet? Because the last time you were on, we discussed your, your third-hand diesel Golf. So is the government going to go electric? And uh, have you still got your diesel? I haven't still got my diesel. Actually. <gasps> it's gone. <laughs> um, yeah, I got rid of it. Um, when I came on your programme, I don't remember exactly when it was. It feels like a long time ago. but um, I Back at the beginning of I August, was... I think. Yes. And... Uh, I talked about my golf that I was very fond of because it's taken my family all over the country and uh, Europe. But um, uh, and I, I got a lot of I got a lot of responses put to my personal email, and um, and I thought some of them were were spot on that you know I should that people the people who emailed were making an effort and um, and that they expected me to, and um, and so we don't we don't have a car anymore. We. You know, you know, I've hurt my leg. It's still uh, not fully recovered, so I can't drive. But that's not the point. The point is that um, we will look into test driving EVs and um, either get the train to Granny's at Christmas or um, or rent an EV and see and see 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 which one works for us. You've so got that, one, uh, haven't you, Matt? We've got a hybrid, so that's a you know we've got we're sort of halfway there. Yeah. Which which basically means you get the sense that you're doing something without the anxiety of you know going on a long drive so we're sort of uh, sort of halfway maybe half. you can send me some some, some i'll send you some details yeah so as a result of you appearing on times radio the diesel's gone uh was it as a result of um appearing as <laughs> <laughs> um I, you know the other thing is that my son is my son's seven and he's just mad keen on them he thinks they're the coolest thing so um uh there's also um you know it is expensive to run diesel but i i thought people were right that that um that uh yeah that we could we can all make um these 
make an effort. And, uh, the, and the, on... the, the thing was, Matt, I didn't drive it very much at the time. I was in the middle of... Um, <laughs> I know, let's not do, get too you, I think you know, don't you? I think you know I cycle everywhere. Got, I'm yeah. really missing cycling. I'm hugely... And my kids scoot everywhere and we walk everywhere. But um, And then to the, the more interesting bit is that the huge fleet of government cars will be electric by 2027. Um, but already Alok Sharma, who's um, COP president-designate, he, he has an electric car. And um, yeah, uh, this is, this is um, there's uh, big, big, big efforts in this area. That's, I, didn't, I must admit, I didn't know that about the government fleet as well. Just very quickly, just because I think this is a really interesting question. Um, David emailed in, and this is also off the back of electric cars and all that. Where's all this extra demand coming from? So we are moving from gas. If, if much more of what we're using in our homes is using electricity rather than gas, cars using electricity rather than petrol, does that require a massive expansion in power generation? Does that mean far more nuclear power stations, wind farms? Where does all that electricity come from? Um, uh, because, you know, he, he makes the point, we basically need to double grid capacity, which will take decades. You know, and Hinkley Point alone is taking a very long time. So where will all that electricity come from? The, again, it's you. You know, you you could do, you know, look no further than the government's net zero strategy and the ten point plan last year. And uh, it is it is going to be a mix of of answers. It will be wind power. We'll have enough wind power by 2030, 40 gigawatts to be able to power every home in the country. If that was so, so if people wanted to, um, there will be solar power in the mix. <clears throat> but but also, I think David asked the question. Yes, we've announced new seed money for small nuclear reactors and also um, scoping exercise for a big one. And um, then we will also, um, if, you look, if you look at the net zero strategy, it has in it a lot of money to help hydrogen, a lot of money. Uh, I, I was um, chairing an event with the Prime Minister and Bill Gates last week. So a lot of money is going towards his breakthrough event and the breakthrough catalyst in particular on that new tech um, for instance, like green hydrogen uh, and long-term battery storage. Um, so there's massives of, of funding and uh, an effort going into um, uh, making sure that in the future we have a mix of energy for our power needs. Allegra, we had so many questions. We could go on and on and on. But I know you're in Downing Street. You've got meetings to go to. It's only a few days to go until COP starts. I assume you're going by train to the COP. I'm going by train to COP, yeah. Very yeah. good. Very I'm good. not cycling. <laughs> there are people cycling. There are people cycling. I wish in another, in another, in another, with a better leg, maybe. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from? Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday.